This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. Today, my guest is Gina Thomas. She's written the book Separated by the Border, a birth mother, a foster mother, and a migrant child's 3,000-mile journey. Thank you so much, Gina, for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed your book. Of course, it was heart-wrenching. It was informative. And uh, I never knew what was coming next in the story. And I really appreciate that you wrote it. Um, It has to do with your own story and, of course, the story of some Honduran people trying to come into the United States. Um, And I'm sure it was difficult to to write it or even to consider writing it. And and this happened sort of recently. Maybe you can give a little bit of a summary or a background of of sort of what happened. Sure. Um, So in February of 2018, um, we got a phone call. Um, My husband and I were foster parents and our social workers knew that we both spoke Spanish. And we got a phone call because they had Uh, found a little girl who only spoke Spanish and needed a placement for her um, just for the weekend initially because uh, they thought that her parents had been deported um, and that she would go into ICE custody uh, the following Monday. And that turned into a longer-term placement, and it turned into um, kind of better understanding the story, realizing that she had come across the border officially as an unaccompanied minor, Mm. but she traveled with her biological mom and her stepdad up from Honduras um, through Guatemala and Mexico, um, trying to make it into the United States through smugglers. Mm. Um, And so they had paid smugglers about 7,500 US dollars to to make this trip. And uh, at the very last point in Northern Mexico, the smugglers decided to keep the biological mother as a hostage. Um, and so then they allowed the stepdad and the little girl to cross over, her name's Julia, um, to cross over to the United States. And when they did, uh, essentially they delivered them to border patrol, um, border patrol then, um, processed, uh, Julia and her stepdad and, uh, deported the stepdad and then, um, allowed Julia to come in as an unaccompanied minor. It's really unclear why the two of them were separated at that point in time. Uh, Some sources say that the United States wouldn't have recognized his stepdad's status, even though his name was on her birth certificate. Mm. Um, So what's recognized in Honduras isn't necessarily in the United States. Mm. Um, But what we had found, and this was all happening um, somewhere between October and November of 2017, Mm. um, one of the things that was also happening at that time that wasn't public, but there was a lot of zero tolerance policy actually happening then, Mm. um, even though that wasn't announced until April of 2018. Mm. Um, Most people know about about it happening between April and June of 2018, Mm. but uh, there are reports now showing that it was happening in June of 2017. Um, And so, Again, it's it's not really clear, but he was deported, and she was uh, she came through um, Office of Refugee Resettlement, where unaccompanied children um, are processed through after they um, after they're processed with Border Patrol, they're sent over to Office of Refugee Resettlement, who then resettles them. Um, and so she was resettled with her stepdad's sister in North Carolina, hmm. 
and that's where we um, that's where we were living at the time. She was neglected by that family. That's called a sponsorship family. Uh, she was neglected by that family and uh, was picked up by police, mm-hmm. who then brought her to to DSS. So um, that's how she ended up in our care. Um, and basically, she was with us for about four and a half months. And during that time, we were all kind of trying to figure out how do we get this little girl back to her mother. Um, mm-hmm. Initially, we didn't know, we didn't have contact with the mom until about two weeks into her stay with us. Mm-hmm. So there was a couple of different miscommunicated um, theories about what had happened. But uh, once we made contact with her mom, um, then we had to go through the process, uh, the foster care process of reunification, um, which ended with the court judge um, in our county um, saying that, that she should be reunified. Uh, and then once that happened, then we had to get the Honduran consulate's help to get her travel papers to be able to take her back to Honduras. Mm-hmm. So in July of last year, um, 2018, my husband Andrew and I went um, with with Julia uh, on a plane to back to her home in Honduras mm. and got to see her reunited with her mother and her brothers. And mm. yeah, it was just a, a beautiful, long, arduous mm. process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now the book goes into a lot of the details of the the entire ordeal and and some of Lupe the the birth mother's situation and what comes across pretty poignantly pretty evidently is that the laws are very complicated even though the mother took great strides to make sure that um Carlos the the adult accompanying her was a legal guardian. They still are separated, mm-hmm. and yet she's put with some of his relatives still. Yeah. And then, so it's yep. it's like there's a lot of strangeness there. And then, how did you even know that Lupe was alive or or uh, able to be reconnected with her daughter? Well, that was actually kind of confusing as well. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, the social services contact was able to, when they talked to her former sponsorship family. So Carlos's mm. sister okay. um, was friends with um, with Lupe. Mm. And so they had contact with each other when she was living at their house, when Julia was living mm. at, at that, um, her stepdad's sister's house, mm-hmm. um, she had contact with her mom. Um, and so that, that stepdad's sister was able to then, um, give DSS that information to mm. contact the mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the scope of the problem is so huge. Um, that's the other thing I, I'd like you to speak about what the zero tolerance means, but also some of the numbers I wanted to mention. Um, it says, you say in your book, in 2017, 76,457,000 family units crossed into the United States, 50,753 were arrested, and the remaining 25,704 were deemed inadmissible. Yeah. Um, so if you if you go on... Um CPB's website, so that's uh, Customs and Border Protection website, they have all of these statistics that are listed there for every um, fiscal year. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a certain number of um, immigrants that are allowed through. There's a certain number that are um, deemed inadmissible, which usually means that um, they've been deported for some reason or another. So it could mm-hmm. be because they have... Um, uh, 
Well, honestly, it's very unclear why. Mm. So what, what I've found in my research is that most of the time it's determined based on whatever um, Border Patrol officer they have mm. um, that day. So there's not a lot of guidelines about whether or not you get to come across. It's really about what is that person, that officer thinking, um, should they let this person in or not? Um, and so it seems very specific to, it just seems like there's a lot of autonomy given to each CPB officer. Hmm. Um, yeah. And you also detail some of the reason why there's such disruption in Honduras and, and some of these Central American um, countries. And a lot of it has to do with um, multinational corporations that have gone in and created puppet governments and and disrupted the economies of these places. And so they are sometimes running for their lives from gangs or from uh, trying to find jobs because of the instability and making this really dangerous trek so, so dangerous that the women will often take birth control before they even try to start out on their journey. And then... Um, you know, they can wind up like Lupe being um, kidnapped and trafficked, sex trafficked. And um, it's it's kind of this, it's just the, this enormous, horrendous problem. And mm-hmm. um, and her story, you were saying, isn't, isn't entirely unique. I, I find that it, it's incredible that she got to be reunited with her daughter again and that she even mm-hmm. survived, that Lupe even survived. Um, but yes. I guess, you know, what I would like to see how how do you frame this in a wider context of what's happening because um it's hard when you don't see this every day to kind of understand what's going on yeah yeah um well you know united nations has has deemed um the the situation that's happening in what's called the northern triangle so that's Mm. uh, honduras el salvador guatemala um as as a crisis and um it's one of the largest um, migration crises that are happening right now, um, but it's not really often framed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, even though there's a lot of uh, a, a refugee crisis happening, um, we kind of see it just as like I feel like it's kind of framed more like poor people are just trying to come to a rich country, right, mm-hmm. and make a better life. Um, mm-hmm. But there, the violence, the um, the femicide that's happening, the corruption, the gang violence, there's a lot of that going on. And um, in a lot of situations, it's a choice between um, am I going to be threatened by the gang every day or am I going to try to make a trip to a place where I don't have to be threatened constantly or my children don't have to be threatened. Um, And I want to be careful to frame this um, to make sure that people understand. And I hope one of the things that came across in the book was a balance between the beauty of Honduras and the beauty of Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and then also the difficulties that are there as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, me as an outsider, I'm from the United States. Uh, I'm a white woman, and I'm speaking about a context that is not my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I need to be very careful there mm-hmm. uh, and not just paint this horribly glim picture. Um, my experience in Mexico, I had a lot of amazing and wonderful friends there mm-hmm. and uh, and a life there that I often miss. Um, and the same with Honduras. I really enjoyed my time living there. Um, and so there's a lot of beautiful and wonderful things that are happening, but there's also just a lot of, of crime and a lot of government corruption mm-hmm. um, as also is happening in the United States, as we're all very aware yeah. of now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it's it's a it's a challenging place um, for families to live right now. Um, specifically, uh, you know, in Lupe's case, it wasn't necessarily about um, fleeing from gang violence. It was uh, economically speaking, she was trying to get um, enough money to pay for medical um, medical uh, bills and medicine for her grandfather. Mm. So it's not always about you know, planning to come to the United States to stay forever. She was not planning to do that. She was planning on just coming to get a job, um, getting enough money to pay for this medicine and being able to go back. Um, and so it really is dependent on the person and their story. And I think everyone has a very unique story of immigration. Mm. Um, but also we can see that there is a huge push factor right now, um, economically speaking, and then violently speaking, there's just a lot of violence that's happening that's forcing people to to try to come to a place that's not violent, um, whether that's, uh, you know, in Nicaragua's case, there's a lot of people moving from Nicaragua to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it just kind of depends on where the where the country's located and what path that they, they think they can make. Mm. You made a really great point in the book that I, I think is important. Um, I've actually been saying it to, to different people as I've been saying it to myself. Um, this idea that about calling people illegals when we don't say that for any other situation. We don't call drunk drivers illegals. We don't call people who jump bail illegals or people who have mm-hmm. uh, you know a whole bunch of unpaid parking tickets illegals. But right. <laughs> for some mm-hmm. reason, we think it's fine to call someone an illegal um, mm-hmm. for, for this thing, which is considered a, a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting, um, you know, and I think that there's some colorism and, and some racism involved here, too, yeah, um, because we, we seem to be more generous to people from to, from and have historically as a country been far more generous to people from uh, white mm-hmm. looking people, light skinned people from those types of countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, as we name people and give them dignity or humanity or take it away. I think that's an important thing to, to call into question how we are framing and the language we're using um, as we look at this this humanitarian crisis in this this area. Um, how did how did you start to shift in, in your ideas of how you saw this? I know you, you've had experience in those parts of the world, but um, that, that was just a really interesting point, and I, if you could unpack it a little, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've never used the word illegal before, um, even before the situation, but I have heard a lot of peop- other people use it, um, and it's always bothered me. Um, and then, of course, being able to do just a lot of research on um, how that is um, – how that's taken, how it's received, uh, why we do what we do, why we're calling it this. Um, and even why in, you know, in American language, um, for, for decades now, we've been using the term legally, um, an alien, uh, and, and just how demeaning that word is, um, in our context today. And as Christians, you know, we're, I think we're a little bit more aware of that word being used for humanity, not necessarily like people who aren't humans, um, just because we're used to the old language of some of that in the Old Testament. But I think in today's world, we need to 
be aware of what these terms mean to other people who are receiving them and to call someone illegal um, is really to demean the the dignity that is given to that human being uh, mm-hmm. as a divine imprinted uh, human and um, and I really struggle with it. I, mm-hmm. You might see me on Twitter get into arguments over it because I just um, I just think it's so incredibly demeaning and uh, if we cannot see the humanity in other people, um, then then we ourselves are becoming less human, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's huge. So living in, um, on, in Honduras and in Mexico um, was interesting. And even in the terms like, um, I, I don't really want to say this out loud, but mm-hmm. like mojado. Um, so living in Mexico, there were there were other Mexicans who would use that word to describe themselves, but it wasn't something that I wanted to ever say. Mm-hmm. Um, in some situations, it's, it's seen um, as derogatory, and others, it's not. Um, and but for me, I just I, I always want to be very aware of the language that I use because I do believe that words are powerful, and in them are life and death, uh, as the Bible says. And so, um, it's. Yeah, just especially understanding my role and who I am and the power that I hold just with the skin color that I have. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to be extra careful um, not to dehumanize anyone else. Yeah, that kind of fits into some of the stuff you say at the beginning of the book. Um, Being a light-skinned person and wanting to help out uh, and feeling the the weight of the responsibility of that can also work into a white savior complex and i think it was mm-hmm. it's brave of you to talk about it in a sense uh it, it, i should say brave <laughs> i don't know <laughs> like what do you say uh, but it's it's important i think that that people mm-hmm. with light skin realize that um mm-hmm. you know coming to the rescue um you know there's i'd like you to explain that for people who don't understand even what that means uh for for white people who might not understand that that drive to help uh, coming mm-hmm. in from a place that's actually kind of a compromising place of, of um a savior complex uh you know kind of being well-intended but sort of not getting it you say um ryan kuja explains a white savior complex this way quote the nagging sense of purposelessness that commonly haunts us is given an analgesic of an opportunity to rescue to save and thus to matter it makes us feel better about who we are yeah yeah it's um it's a a term and a process that when i first uh when i first learned about it um i was in graduate school um, I was living in Mexico at the time in graduate school through Eastern University and learning about international development. And mm-hmm. um, that, I mean, it, it, it does. It smacks you in the face, especially as, as a white person who's, uh, whose main goal in life is to mm-hmm. seek justice, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a huge um, awakening to what the realities are um, around the world and, you know, throughout history. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember, um, is, is even just the the concept of colonialism and how, um, how much of, uh, missionary work, Mm. uh, was also tied with colonistic expeditions and, um, to really try to understand how deep that goes, um, not just in history, but in our, um, in our blood and as, as white people, you know, I was, 
you know, I was always drawn to the pictures of, um, sadly, I was drawn to pictures of, of white people holding brown babies. And, um, and it's something that I'm still trying to work through. There's still moments where I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is me being a white savior. This is me trying to be God, not trying to, um, be a brother or a sister, um, with those who I believe are on the same, um, the same playing field as I am. And so that, that's the thing that I struggle with the most with it is that I think a white savior complex, uh, and I talk about this a lot in my first book, a smoldering wick, but I, I think that it, um, it kind of leans toward a mentality of charity where you're up on a pedestal and the person that you're helping is not. Um, so you're never on the same, um, level as someone else. And I think that it's really important as uh, followers of Christ to recognize that, that Christ and the gospel, they knock down, um, all pedestals that are, are human created and, uh, and those who maybe hold more privilege or more power based on, um, the way the world works really need to understand that, uh, we've got to step down from those pedestals, whether they're, um, created by ourselves, which they often are, or if they're created by other people who kind of hold us to that pedestal because the world does, um, we have to be extra intentional about stepping down from that and making sure that um, that we're empowering in a way that's actually participatory and not in a way that sounds like it is or can be um, kind of euphemized to, to, to be that way, but actually is empowering to to those who don't have as much privilege and power as, as we, we might. Yeah, there's a paternalistic thing that's happened for a long time. Like, I can help you become more like me. And that's right. <laughs> um, the pit, right. there's pity involved instead of uh, just equality and mutuality. And I think also it, co- it becomes very obvious sometimes when, when groups go over to, to other nations and white kind of colonial groups, you could yep. say, go over, but you don't see leadership from... Um, Yep. you just see all white leadership or you, you never mm-hmm. see a real um, that that the people that they're serving, it, it mm-hmm. just stays the people that they're serving. Those people don't get leadership positions instead of like get, you get to have this. You This is yours yep. and you get to own this. And this is this is yours. We're, we're just giving you some ideas to get started and we're going to help you make this your own. It's still kind of like let us teach you. And then, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's definitely a, a two tier class, but I don't even think that sometimes it's intentional. And sometimes I think mm-hmm. it, it's an, it's unconscious, which is maybe even, you know, worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. there, there is a sense, I mean, I, it has to get called out. And then um, in the situation when, when people need help, um, like such as immigrants or refugees, it's still the same thing uh, that we wind up getting into. Let's, let's help these poor people. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we don't realize that the, that immigrants, refugees, they're really missionaries to us. Uh, Mm -hmm. They, they are really bringing us the gospel because they're poor in spirit. They're, um, they have something to teach us, but we might think what well, we, we can only help them. You know, they have, there's right. nothing there, but in fact, they're revealing our poverty, right? That's right. 
It's so true. Um, yeah, and that's the thing is that it's so easy to be a white savior when you don't see yourself as poor. Mm. And I think, once again, that the gospel shows us that we are all poor. We all have poverty of some form or another. Mm. Um, and there there must be mutuality there for it to be gospel. Mm. Yeah, you have a quote in here that you write. It says, Till the day I die, I believe I will need friends to call out this tendency of mine, a desire to fix others' problems with my resources and my privilege, creating a counterfeit sense of worth. And I think that's that's true for a lot of people who want to help. You know, what, mm-hmm. you want to help yeah. and you want to make the world better. And it does make you feel good to help. You know? yeah. uh, and it's not, you know, it's because you want things to be better, but it also, mm-hmm. if, if you can't help, you, you also feel lacking, right? That's right. And um, yeah, That's so right. some of the, the very touching parts was just how affected Julia was from the entire journey, how she had dissociative amnesia, which a lot of kids have as they come over. They're so traumatized, they don't remember a bunch of it. And maybe she will remember mm-hmm. it later, but um, mm-hmm. it, it's incredibly traumatizing and and I want to understand too why are why are children being separated at all uh, why are families mm-hmm. being separated at all yeah um, well um, right now it's uh, it's because of um, there was a giant ice raid recently in, mm-hmm. in Mississippi um, and so right now, a lot of it is due to deporting parents, um, and, and leaving children behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is something that's been going on for a long time. It's not necessarily new. Um, it's just more in the open right now because it's so widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, um, organizations like kind kids in need of defense who have put out, uh, an article that I quote somewhere in the book about, um, how often and how long, um, family separation has been going on Mm. and how long, um, these organizations have been fighting against it. Um, but it's been used as a deterrence for a lot of, um, for a number of years. And, uh, this particular time in the zero tolerance, the famous zero tolerance policy that was going on in in 2018, Mm. um, Jeff Sessions, the attorney, attorney general at the time was talking quite a bit about how, the whole point of it was to deter more immigrants from coming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But again, if you look at the s- situations that are happening in the countries that are making, if you look at the push factors, then you're going to understand that um, there's, there's still going to be people. It's not going to d- deter people from coming because they're coming to try to, to find life. And, um, and so unfortunately there were, I, I think at this point, the number is probably um, somewhere around 3000 Three mm-hmm. three thousand seven hundred something like that. Um, children and families who were who were separated during that that time frame. Um, mm-hmm. They're still trying to collect data and find out exactly how many uh, were separated because there was a very poor system of mm-hmm. um, of knowing who was separated and who belonged to who. Um, but uh, the idea was that uh, if if people knew that they would be separated, then they wouldn't come, mm-hmm. um, and then. Uh, on top of that, a lot of the separation that's going on now with uh, deportations is, is, you know, I don't really know. I'm not sure what their what their thoughts are there because uh, it just it just seems incredibly inhumane to to, to split families in, in such a way. Mm-hmm. And one of the women that I um, I met uh, last year when I went to um, 
a detention facility in Texas was talking about her. She was deported, um, separated from her six and eight year old American daughters. Her, her daughters were were born in, in the United States and she was deported by ICE. Um, and her eight year old had um, they had been apart for about a year when we met and her eight year old had tried to commit suicide. Wow. Um, and you know, these are the, these are the things that it seems like, um, maybe there needs to be more humanitarian aid work happening here and not so much of, um, only just, um, department of Homeland security, because this isn't just a security issue. It's a humanitarian issue. And, um, and, you know, suicides and attempts of suicides, the, the, those are normal. And, and we've heard uh, in the news several different uh, suicides that have happened because of zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the lifelong trauma that our government is wreaking on, um, you know, really wreaking havoc on, on the lives of, of human beings who, again, are made in the image of God. It's just, mm. it's beyond sad. It's yeah. uh, lamentable and... Um, you know, I want to tear your, if, if I had sackcloth, I want to tear my sackcloth, um, mm-hmm. in ways that I have never experienced those phrases, those lament phrases in the Bible I have, um, throughout this process. Mm. Yeah. 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 I also being up close to it, to read it, um, you know, you hear, you hear about the cages and you hear about people being separated and, and then it really is, more detailed and up close in your story and and you get a sense of just how deep the problem goes and how complicated the system is and when people Mm -hmm. get separated they go into the system and they're not required to follow up and so they get lost in it and then you think well what on earth is going to happen to them and how how would they ever get back with their family and and then when you're thinking about mental health or Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. whether these kids are going to get into drugs or alcohol to soothe the you know to self-medicate or get into crime I mean you're you're we're creating uh, more problems obviously but um, yeah and then trying to come up with with solutions that well of course, you have to come up with solutions now, but also solutions to how how do we best deal with all the people coming who are looking for something better, and how do you process all these people, and how do you right. you know how do you deal with it? Because it's it's a crisis right now, but mm-hmm. it's also a continuing issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously mm-hmm. way above my understanding, but um, as you have. You've continued to to be in touch with the family with Lupe and Julia. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah. We we talk at least at least once a week, more like four or five times a week. Wow, yeah. wow. And did you? Um, I know you moved since you wrote the yeah. book. And do you want to be uh, continue to be involved in in these areas, or continue to have foster kids, or what is your what is um, like? Where is your heart with it now? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. Um, it's challenging. We mm-hmm. um, fostering licenses don't transfer between states, mm-hmm. so we would need to start the process again. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been now in Tennessee for um, I think about nine months, maybe a little bit longer, um, and we're we're still trying to kind of feel settled as a family here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we also realized and recognized how much our support system had helped us be mm-hmm. foster parents, that mm-hmm. we be the foster parents that we could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes our DSS office, the social work, social workers that were there, um, mm-hmm. other foster parents in the community that had kind of built up a group of, um, of people and places to connect. And, um, uh, in addition, our church family, mm-hmm. um, like I say in the book, there were so many people who were, um, previously involved in foster care or currently involved in foster care, social workers, mm-hmm. um, who were a part of that church community that was just, I mean, it was huge for us to mm-hmm. have their insight, um, into some of what was happening. And we just had no clue what was going on or what we needed to look for. Um, and then on top of that, our family, so our, both of our extended, extended family, mine and my husband's, uh, live in North Carolina. So, mm-hmm. um, we want to make sure that if we do get back into foster care, which is something that's on my heart to do, um, but we, we need to make sure that it's the best thing for our family and that we mm-hmm. are in a place where we're able to be supported by, um, our local community enough to make it a healthy environment for a child to come into. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think right now with, um, both of us working and the kids at school, like there, there's just a lot happening. Um, and then of course the book coming up, um, that there's not a lot of attention and time that could be given, uh, that's Mm -hmm. really needed for, um, for parenting, um, foster children. So we're trying to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, I'm sure it's a process and, and, um, it takes so much extra energy that you don't really even expect that it'll take. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. We were like, wow, we like we had no idea how many minutes, like milliseconds are in a day until like, <laughs> yeah. you become foster parents. And you're like, whoa, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it was the language barrier. There was the yeah. Julia had trauma and mm-hmm. uh, she was trying to adjust. There was the culture shock and there was so much and then your own children are are trying to adjust and they have their own issues and things that they're dealing with as kids and uh, you don't want it to be you know you don't want it to be traumatic so much for your own children that you're putting them in some sort of jeopardy either yeah 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 it's such a fine balance and and really foster care to me just shows um it just shows the power of the gospel in such a way that I've never seen before because it really is like mm. God has opened up his family for us to be a part, um, of his life. And really in doing so, uh, it requires sacrifice on the family's behalf. And I don't, mm. I don't say that to try to compare our family to God. Like I don't, that's not what I'm trying to get at at all here, but to really understand, um, what God does for us as a as a parent, um, both as a mother and a father, um, is, is just a really beautiful under a new and deeper understanding of God's love, um, for me personally. Now, if somebody were considering either foster care or wanting to help with this immigration situation or the refugee situation that in, in real tangible ways, not just, Mm -hmm. Uh, tweeting now and then or sending mm-hmm. money now and then, but, mm-hmm. but in ways that would actually make a difference, what are some of the, the things they could move toward or, or places they could move toward to see some of these things come to fruition? Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the things that we talked about already is language. And um, I think it's, it's huge. Uh, it doesn't sound huge, but it, I think it's huge to be 
aware of the language that we're using and that we're allowing our community to use around uh, immigration. Um, and in, there's <clears throat> specifically within those who, for those who are Christians or spiritual to, um, to pray, uh, there's so many different aspects of this to pray for, um, whether it's, you know, officials, whether it's, um, volunteers on the border, um, spiritual directors on the border, all the different, um, pieces, families themselves, the trauma that they're dealing with, um, compassion, for uh, authority figures and for um, customs and border protection, um, and really just learning to lament as churches, um, speaking mm-hmm. about immigration as churches from the pulpit. Um, it's not something that often happens, and I, when I've heard it happen, it's often very negative, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think that we need to be more um, intentional about speaking about the image of God that is in the people that we think are... Um, I don't know. We, we, we feel threatened by, maybe I should say, um, there, I have a whole list of different things, like actual tangible ways that people can get involved, um, mm-hmm. at the border on my, my website, it's just Gina Thomas, G E N A Thomas.com. And then the backslash resources, mm. um, to actually kind of help people learn more about contacting their government representatives, um, different organizations that they can get involved in or support in different ways, um, ways that they can get involved in their local community, um, so yeah, I'm hopeful that, that some of these things will be, um, helpful for people to, to kind of get into maybe those who haven't been a part of, of this particular justice issue to, to get involved. That's good. While you're mentioning that, you can mention where else can people find you on Twitter or Facebook or any other place that you, uh, should be found. Yeah, um, on social media, my handle is Gina L. Thomas, so it's G-E-N-A-L Thomas. Uh, I'm most of the time on Twitter, uh, although every once in a while I'll pop into Instagram and um, and Facebook. So, But yeah, I'd love to connect with people there and love having conversations um, about this kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's good. I think um, your book really was touching and um, brought home to me, you know, when you, when you hear a real story and it has... Um, I mean, it, it had so many parts to it. It had so many um, intricacies and twists and turns. And ultimately, you really sacrificed a lot in your family to have Julia reunited with her mom and then, um, you know, stay connected in relationship with them. It was just very beautiful and, and um, very grateful that you allowed um, God to work in your lives like that and and be a part of that story it was just it was just beautiful to read and so thank you so much for sharing that story well thank you that means so very much to me I really appreciate it thank you sure well is there any any last words that you have any words of wisdom or anything you would like to ask of my listeners yeah just um just be praying for um if they if they think to pray for Lupe and her family, um, there's there's more situations that they have to deal with on a regular basis that uh, that I I don't um, I don't live in that environment and and they do and I think there's much there's much yet to be learned from all of us for those um, who are in those positions and have to make very difficult choices on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. lift up Lupe and Julia and her brothers um, in your prayers. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I feel so honored. I really appreciate it. 